0: Welcome to the Less Doing Podcast, where you will learn how to start living more by doing less.
1: Let me help you optimize, automate, and outsource your entire life so you can focus on doing the things you love.
0: Now, here's your host, Ari Meisel.
1: Hey, everyone, it's Ari. So, the episode you're about to hear now was recorded live and raw. It is unedited at our recent less doing Los Angeles event. The event included about 50 amazing entrepreneurs, many of whom are in the less doing leaders coaching program. We had world-class speakers and the theme of the event was perfect your process. So we had experts across several different genres and every talk was given as a fireside chat style conversation so again they're unedited they're these episodes are explicit we are an explicit podcast but these were uh, a little more explicit in some cases than others so fair warning and if you want to find out more about what we do at a less doing live event after you listen to this episode go to lessdoing.com and click on our live events button now enjoy the episode all right well so welcome shane snow thank you uh and so Shane is an author. Um, I, I'd say you're a life hacker uh, for sure, and has uh, one of the things you may know Shane from is he did an experiment a while ago where he existed on nothing but Soylent for how long?
2: Just for a few weeks, but I was the first one to do that one. Yeah.
1: Yeah, Yes. Anyone know what Soylent is? No. So Soylent was one of the first sort of like meal replacement in a bottle things. That like came the out. goop
2: on the Matrix, basically. Yeah,
1: essentially. <laughs> um, and there have been uh, quite a few that have come out since then but um, yeah, so Shane a few weeks I thought it was like a three-day four-day thing
2: yeah, It was a few weeks how,
1: so how long? 20 days yeah. so it's meant to be a full replacement right you're not supposed to have to eat food at all so you did that and um, I just remember a lot of like gassiness and bloating it was really
2: yeah the details were gross the better one was when I ate only halo top ice cream for 10 days and I lost 10 pounds yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, OK,
1: so So how did you come up with like, how did you come up with that as an experiment? Both of them.
2: Uh, so what I, I like to do is, right, so I consider myself a journalist, um, but my dad is an engineer. so I grew up basically taking things apart and putting them back together and learning about doing that basically, and, and how to jury rig things to get them to work. And so I like doing that in terms of journalism. There's something that I want to explore, something I want to understand. I will take it apart or try and, and actually live it and then piece it together and then try and explain it. So whether that's a topic that I want to get in deeper, so a lot of my business writing, or um, in the case of health stories or, so with, with Storylanders, I met the guy who started this and he was a programmer that, uh, that basically he was tired of spending so much time eating and so he wanted to make this thing that didn't take any time to eat so he didn't have to think about that so he could just think about code and that was like everything the body needed and so i uh i read the nutrition facts and i spent a little bit of time with him and i said you know what, i'll just i'll gonzo journalist this and i'll i'll put it to the test and i'll only eat it and then publish it on tim Ferriss's blog and it uh it was quite healthy but it turns out that it does awful things to your digestive tract. so the halo top ice cream one was is another example of of that i don't always do just food I' like, do like electric brain simulation or you know go uh i'm really into urban exploring so hang out with people who break into buildings and stuff um, but the uh, the ice cream one was this uh, i discovered this ice cream that uh it's like 220 calories per pint it's made with stevia, it's high fiber, high protein. And I did the math and I said I could eat six pints of this a day and work out and lose weight and probably maintain muscle. So I ordered a crate, like a frozen crate of it and, uh, and did that for 10 days. And, and then I wrote this funny article about not only that, and my trainer freaking out and talking to nutritionists <laughs> about this. And you know, it turns out that that is true. I was really calorie deficient and miserable, but also the logistics of eating only ice cream are really hard, so you have to carry things around <laughs> like ice packs with you. And it was like the Emmys or something. All my friends like went to this viewing, and I have ice cream. Everyone's eating lobster, mac and cheese, and drinking champagne. And uh, so, anyway, kind of to illustrate the point, I think actually doing something yourself and and exploring yourself. Um, may rest in peace, Anthony Bourdain was a hero of mine because he would actually go to these places and actually sit down with these people who cook. Um, and I think that uh, for me, that is just fascinating, but it's also a, a unique way to deconstruct things and then reconstruct them so that people can understand in those cases, health, food, or sort of our choices as it has to do with what we put in our bodies. and. Um, anyway, so that's kind of the story behind that.
1: Yeah, and so one of the, the things that's that's particularly interesting to me in your sort of psyche and the, the way you approach this stuff is that deconstruction and reconstruction, right? So whether it's a food thing or, like you said, uh, transcranial electrical stimulation. Um, it, well, actually, before I even get to that question, is there a particular experiment that you felt was the most impactful on you?
2: On me personally. Um... Well, I mean, I think all three of the books that I've written have kind of been sort of bigger exercises in sort of an excuse for self improvement um, under the guise of journalism. Essentially, I do think that my so my first book was about uh, innovation. is essentially about hacking, um, but it's about how breakthroughs happen when someone breaks a norm. And, and that was of, smart cuts, by the way. Yeah, um, whether it's science or business or the arts. Uh, you see breakthrough progress when someone plays a different game rather than the same game. And so that's what I wanted to explore, um, particularly because I had started a company and wanted to kind of think differently about what we were building. So I think those those have been the most, just sort of, it's not one principle that I explored in that. And I, I, I'm the most proud of this uh, because it has really changed the way that I ran my company and think about, Even my own solo projects, how I collaborate and sort of understanding the psychology and neuroscience of group dynamics and teamwork and sort of what's changed, I think has had the most positive impact on my output of anything that I've worked on. But it's not, you know, one principle. It's, you know, these sort of big explorations into lots of the norms and myths we have around these kinds of business principles. So, yeah, uh, that's not the clean answer to to it. But I I have always liked that. (coughs) sort of combining this sort of engineering mindset with journalistic curiosity, really for my own sake to learn something, but then the benefit is because I have to write about it or because I've decided, committed to writing about it, I have to actually learn it so that I can teach it and that helps people too. So
1: So is there a method to how you deconstruct these things?
2: Yeah, so I think in terms of, well, a couple things. So I have uh, one of my favorite editors at Wired Magazine, who used to write, he would always say that great writing is one-third writing the other two-thirds are research and thinking or reporting and thinking and uh, so that's one I uh, spent a lot of time doing that but what I actually do is basically the uh, elementary school scientific method so my intake form for myself basically is what's the observation I've made about something um, so I have you know my lists everywhere on sticky notes and an Evernote. known and Wonder lists of ideas I have or things I've observed that I'm curious about. And then what's the question I have about it? So scientific method, right? If you're making a volcano out of vinegar or whatever in elementary school for the science fair, it's observation, question, hypothesis, experiment, analysis. And so actually applying that to journalism, I think applying that to business building, really, like there's so many assumptions inherent to anything that we're doing or any way that we approach a problem. So, yeah, so that's my process. Make an observation about something. So one that I'm working on right now, article. Um, I made the observation that uh, that there's some, so when we think about profanity, I have this question, or just this observation, that there's some words that we used to not be able to say that now we could say. So the question was, why is that? And why are there some words that we still can't say? And what's the history of profanity and, Uh, When is it bad? When is it not? And why? You know, I grew up in Idaho. We couldn't say any of the kinds of words that I say now every three sentences in New York. And why is that? And uh, so that was a question. And that turns into, well, I have a series of hypotheses about different things. And then that leads to a rabbit hole of interviewing experts, looking at research, reading a bunch of books. um, I made for this particular article that'll come out sometime soon, I made this gigantic spreadsheet of every curse word ever in the English language. And then I made a little generator where you can actually, like, some of the fun of cursing is the combinations. <laughs> uh, so you can randomly <laughs> generate combinations. So, like, jack shit. Jack is the, you know, prefix and shit is the curse word, but it makes it funnier. Um, or funner, yeah. And so, so I made this generator and all these graphs. And basically, uh, my hypothesis, whatever the initial hypothesis w- was, is that... Um, Basically, the cursing used to be about uh, saying things that would offend God, and now the society is uh, less focused on that, as God is like the central sort of character in our authority uh, in society, that uh, those words are no longer that, uh, that bad, and it turns out there's a lot more nuance to it. Actually, the curse words that still remain charged today are the ones where you are categorized, putting someone in a category, and then taking away their power or denigrating that category. So... Like the N word okay. or the K word or, uh, but there's some examples like bitch, for example. How like somehow we've normalized this? Like how you Yeah, like I can't say. Shane, uh, what is
1: your favorite curse word? <laughs>
2: <laughs> My favorite curse word. Actually, I learned in this one. I'm really rambling on this this oh, point, but uh, I learned that ass hat is up and ass wipe is down as of about three years ago. Oh. So I tapped into all these databases. I wanted to know what are the derivations of these curse words. So there's all these databases of movie scripts and TV. Uh, so, uh, captions and book archives. Google has the ngram of every book they have archived. Anyway, so you can search for words and see how they ebb and flow. Um, anyway, so all of that is part of the, uh, the experiment portion for me. It really is sort of a research portion, but I, I'm trying to test these theories I have around this, and then the more you learn, the more hypotheses you develop, and you explore those, then eventually there's a just a ton of stuff in my Evernote that I then have to kind of connect the dots and, and ask the question, who's going to care about this and why are they going to care? And so how am I going to write this out so that uh, it has some sort of effect on people that learning about this is important or at least makes you smile and want to share it, whatever. So that's kind of the process. And sometimes it's more for, frivol- I actually think this one, it started as a sort of a frivolous thing and it's turned into actually a commentary on society on how the thing that is, Most important to us now uh, in terms of the sort of social dynamics are how we treat other people and actually the sort of in group, out group psychology of categorizing people and how we still have a hard time dealing with that because it's built into our brains. Um, But that's where we have the most problems where people don't really have a problem with scatological, with talking about poop anymore, which used to be what a category of cursing, right? So that actually turns into this uh, commentary on language and how we treat each other and trigger words and that sort of thing. So inadvertently turn into something that's serious and I think important, but a lot of times these are things that I'm just curious about, um, and yeah, I try to actually spend about a about twenty percent of my time on things that are just I'm interested in this thing, and it has nothing to do with my work, and about eighty percent of my time doing that process with things that are actually more business related. Or uh, I really am into the psychology of human behavior and how that relates to business and markets and economics and stuff. So. Um, so I do the same thing with, you know, meetings or with groupthink or, you know, a lot of stuff that ended up in dream teams is about, you know, the myth of synergy and why do we say it when, you know, the two cliches we have, uh, two heads are better than one. And also it's, so it takes so long to turn a battleship or whatever, the bigger the group, the slower it gets. So, well, how is that true if two heads are better than one? And so those things that are actually a little bit more sort of directly applicable to my actual work. So what was the observation that led to dream teams? There are a few things. So one was that I, so I started this company with two friends in uh, 2010 and, uh, you know, and as things go, as we were successful, as we iterated, it ballooned and metastasized. And we, my job went from creative creator, producer, person, element of this company to person who finds other people to do that stuff basically. And helps them to not fight so where i was doing a lot of the marketing work and the creative work and making decisions i now had a team of 30 people that i had to decide who are the right people to put together what do i do when they're not getting along and how do i get them to make better decisions than i could make how do i because if i'm supposed to be this hero person that is right about everything we are going to fail um, and in my anxiety around sort of how do you lead a team and how do you make that transition to team leader I had questions around you know, what makes an incredible team, what makes a good team leader? And you know there's a lot of, of research out there that is sort of confusing on that front. And, and there's also this question that I was really interested in, maybe starting about five years ago around diversity. And you know as a team leader, like what are the kinds of diversity that are important and why is all this research there, there's all sorts of confusing research basically about, Corporate boardrooms that have a lot of demographic diversity tend to make fewer dumb decisions. And yet, when you, the research that no one likes to trot out is that when you look at the sort of employee level, like the worker level of big companies, lots of demographic diversity actually leads to more turnover and more fear and is not correlated with better corporate results. It's actually only at the board level where it seems to matter. So, I had that question. The answer to that is actually pretty simple it's that at the board level, everyone's participating, everyone is actually arguing and fighting and bringing everything they have or you're not on the board if you're not going to actually fully engage. Whereas in a lot of companies, we hire lots of different people and then we say fit the program. And so there's fear and people hold back. And anyway, so in exploring some of those things and wondering how do I do that as a team leader, the other thing that happened as I was, you know, these are all these different questions that I had that I'm trying to write about and trying to sort of process as a leader. I also had this strange thing happen to me where, uh, so my dad's an engineer, he works in nuclear energy so I grew up with this storyline about how all of these different scientists from all these different countries put their heads together to help us unlock this amazing power um, that instead of burning coal and polluting the atmosphere, uh, we could now harness the atom and it makes steam. And my dad's job was actually to make the nuclear canister, the canisters to hold the waste so that it doesn't hurt anyone. So I had this storyline about how, you know, Russian scientists and American scientists and this dude from New Zealand and, you know, Marie Curie and all of these like French and Swedish and whatever, old and young, uh, all built on each other's work and shared labs so that we could make this huge breakthrough, this amazing technology, which itself is an analogy uh, for what it is, which is different particles smashing together to make heat so that we can do that. So I was at this, uh, this thing called Nerd Night, which is uh, every month in New York scientists get drunk and give powerpoint presentations so i go to this because i'm a nerd i've
1: never known about and this that. is
2: where i yeah this is where i get some of my story ideas too so i was at <laughs> at this nerd night and this guy gives this presentation called who will kill us first the aliens or the robots and it's hilarious and he's making jokes and he's hammered but he's these are all real scientists so he's drawing on real research and you know what are the the theories around if we invent you know artificial superintelligence, will it be friendly or not and if aliens haven't gotten here yet, you know, do they exist? And would they be friendly or not if they found us? Uh, so he gives this presentation. and Afterwards, he gets off the stage. And this is my chance for the greatest question in my journalistic career. So I grab him and I say, wouldn't the aliens that make it here have already had to deal with their own robots before they can even, you know, build the faster than light travel? And he says, oh, yeah, anything that makes it across the galaxy to Earth would be the robotic descendants of the organic life form that at one point created them.
0: And then he says, this is the point
2: of the story. then he says, but that doesn't matter because we're going to blow ourselves up with nukes long before that. And then he walks away into the dark. And and I'm like half drunk and like thinking about this. So I look him up the next day and this guy is the director of the Global Catastrophic Risk Institute whose job is to figure out what's going to destroy mankind and then brief the UN on what we can do about it. And... uh, (laughs) So then I was like, oh, my God. Uh, And so I interviewed him, of course, and I asked him, what are all the things that could blow us up and, you know, ruin mankind? And it turns out that the top five things are all all boiled down to the same thing, which is different humans not getting along, not being able to deal with our different wants and desires in this world, different ways of looking at things. And so I saw in that the most dramatic analogy for what's going on in my company, what you kind of see everywhere when you start to think about teamwork or sort of people interacting, all of this potential energy that helped us create this nuclear power with all of these different minds that came together. And those very same differences, the very same countries are the reason why we have nuclear weapons pointed at each other where we turn that tool into a weapon. And, and I saw that in my company that, you know, my German head of product and my Korean head of design had all these arguments and made amazing shit together. And as long as that relationship stayed in this zone of healthy tension, things were good. And as soon as it got personal, things were really bad. And, I, and so I wondered, is that how innovation works? Is that, you know, I've been writing about, you know, breakthroughs and how they happen when you change the game. It's the easiest way to change the game, actually, when you combine different viewpoints. And then it's like, oh, that's the definition of creativity. And so that took me down this path of, of kind of what became the book. I didn't write about, you know, the catastrophic risk guy but this thing that you see everywhere, which is the thing that gives us all the potential in the world, it's actually in Star Trek in 1963 or something. Um, Gene Roddenberry talked about uh, how the ideal for the future, the way we won planet Earth and uh, stopped fighting was the philosophy, infinite diversity, infinite combinations. That if we can rather than tolerate the different ways that we look at the world and how we're different, if we can see that as the fuel that we put into our starships then we can explore the galaxy and, and have peace or whatever, um, so that's kind of what the, the paradox is, that that fuel is also very explosive. And the way that our brains are wired to survive in tribes around campfires and to be suspicious of people who don't think like us or look like us, um, that's the thing that's going to get in the way of us actually going to the stars rather than you know blowing ourselves up. Anyway, so that, that was the, mm-hmm. the genesis. But I think for me, sort of deconstructing that psychology and just the way that our interactions work uh, is extremely useful for whether you're sitting at a desk. so for me in my writing process as a writer, now thinking about all of the inputs that I'm bringing into my process, all of the people that I'm bringing in to help make my work better, make my ideas better, make my writing better, actually inviting my intellectual opponents and enemies and critics onto my team to help me make my work better, um, which is something that I've you know avoided before. anyway, so there's a whole bunch of stuff in there for individuals too. Um, but uh, but yeah, I got really excited about this idea that we can be more incredible. We can we don't have to be just as smart as the smartest person in the room. We can be much smarter. We can be much better. But uh, with that comes this risk. And the reason we have all of these sort of dumb norms in business and why we squash people's different ideas and values and ways of doing things is because we want to avoid that conflict boiling over. But actually, that's what gives us. I'm sort of repeating myself yeah. now at this point. Oh, but-
1: so, what what was one of the most surprising discoveries for you, um,
2: for for, for uh, teams and, and collaboration? Um, I mean, there's a there's a whole bunch of them. I would say the most surprising statistic that I found that the the first chapter after the prologue is about cops, about detectives and solving solving crimes, basically, which is you know problem solving. Um, about I was fascinated by this stat that. Lady cops are six times less likely to shoot someone than male cops, and uh, twenty times less likely to get uh, accused of excessive force or whatever. And so I had the question: Well, why don't we make all cops women and solve all of the, like the horrible problems we have uh, with you know police violence? And uh, so that chapter of and that is actually a terrible idea too. To make all the cops women would be really bad. Why? Um, Because basically that becomes the entree into talking about perspectives and heuristics and the actual math of that synergy word. So it's mathematical models around the different dimensions of our brains and and what we have in them, how they can add up to more. So basically how groupthink works is you have a group of people that all start to assume that the way the group is going to do things is the way we have to do it. And we can't sort of go outside of those boundaries. And it's really easy to fall into that if you all are kind of similar. So you have a group of male cops mm. who are all kind of buddies and, uh, or they want to be. And then you sort of morph into there's one solution to the problem. And often, just because of the way boys grow up, especially you know in a place like this, you solve problems by kicking down the door. Uh, whereas, uh, actually interesting stat, uh, female cops are more likely to pull their gun, less likely to shoot their gun. So they use firearms as a negotiation tactic, as a, uh, basically as a tool for calming a situation down or whatever, but they don't actually use the tool. Um, and there's some really interesting stuff around. Basically, the, the answer is that if you have a police partnership that is a man and a woman, they're going to be more confident in their work, and they're going to be more likely to solve problems better and make good arrests and not make mistakes, like shooting someone wrongfully. Um, In part, that's because you recognize we're not both going to have the same answer to every problem because we're visibly different. Even if you grew up largely the same, there is a certain and there's also an element of, hey, if by middle school you realize you're not as strong in your upper body strength, your heuristics that you develop for solving certain types of problems are going to be different than kicking down the door, basically. But it also goes with uh, old cops and young cops. You have a partnership like the classic buddy cop duo of like the grizzled old cop. Uh, and the young rookie who's excited and that actually yields a similar kind of result. It also happens with gay cops and straight cops together. In all these cases, there is more discomfort and there is more turnover, but uh, but the partnerships that get it uh, actually do better work. So that, that was one really surprising one. The most surprising one... Oh, wait, sorry, one second. So, sure. so my whole team is women, so is that bad? There's more dimensions to difference than just gender right i would say if your team is all women that's you're going to have blind spots in areas that are relevant to i mean i'm on the team too yeah. I say so <laughs> what you don't want is blind spots in relevant areas so there are going to be some things some of your customers that uh there are things that you will just never see because of your perspective as a man maybe not everything you're working on maybe most of what you're working on actually will have nothing to do gender will never come into play but you want to set yourself up for the most chance of a pool, a cognitively diverse pool. So if your team's all women, that's great. Cognitive but diverse. That's... Uh, if, as long as uh, you know, there's at least one man, it's probably good. You may want more. I think more important for what you're doing is actually going to be geographic background um, for a lot of the kinds of problems that you're solving because your customers are very geographically diverse. Um, a lot of the problems that you're solving have to do with remote work. Um, so, living different ways is actually and and just understanding different ways of living it's going to be pretty relevant to a lot of the problems you're solving so there's lots of dimensions so in the in the book i actually break down there's there's a couple things that happen when you start getting into this one is some people will say oh great we're we have diversity of thoughts so we don't need to include anyone who's different than us because in our heads we're all different which is like huge mistake Mm -hmm. that's just setting yourself up um and then there's also the, oh, hey, this is a pragmatic excuse to do something that's a good moral choice, which is to include people who are not like you um, in your, your work. But uh, there's lots of things that become proxies for uh, cognitive diversity. And I break it down into the two heuristics and perspectives. But there's lots of things about just your mosaic that you process information through, the stained glass that you see the world through, that have to do with your life story, basically. Your life story, what you've been through is very much a function of who you are on the inside and outside. So uh, i say it probably would be a mistake if you grow your team to 50 people. If there's 49 women and one man, you're going to have some blind spots because uh, you're the only one, only one bringing a male perspective to some problems. So, um, Chris, you have a question?
1: Yeah, I was just going to say so it sounds like you're saying it's better to have that diversity even though it's going to be more painful but the quality of what you're producing is going to be that much more exponentially
2: better. Yes, so that's actually the second piece of the equation of the formula is uh, if you say you're making a cake, if you have three different kinds of flour, you're not going to get cake, right? You're only going to have like a good flour mix, basically. Mm -hmm. Um, But if you have flour and eggs and milk, you know, mix them, you leave them in their own bowls, then you're going to get nothing, right? You're not going to make something better than any of those ingredients. So the idea of cognitive friction is actually the the next ingredient that's really important you need the different perspectives and heuristics and predictive model all you need the different heads to actually smash together and that part is going to be uncomfortable so the leader's job is to create an environment where people don't freak out in that uncomfortable state i mean it's sort of a cliche at this point that innovation you know is in an area of discomfort right Right. Um or you know, any analogy. You're going to the gym, right? If you're not your muscles aren't sore, they're not gonna grow. Um, so you need that. That is a you know, the cognitive friction thing is very important. But um but really what happens so I have this chart that I draw that's basically plot potential energy on the y-axis and tension on the other axis. You can think of a rubber band, but you can also think of a relationship between people. The more you stretch the rubber band, the more tension, the more potential energy there is. I don't know if this is you yeah. can actually visualize this but it's it's a curve at a certain point the rubber band snaps and it loses all potential energy so you have a relationship with a group of people the more you can have them pulling on the different sides of the rubber band intellectually the more potential you have but everyone's afraid of the part where the rubber band snaps right and that's why we build in the, that's what, we actually fear that more than we just sort of jump right to there and there's a lot of kind of evolutionary psychology uh to it but, um, but if you can exist in that place of discomfort, then that's where there's possibility. There's more than that. So the last, and I can talk about this later, there's other questions, but in the cake baking analogy, if you don't put the cake in the oven and have it actually change properties, you're not going to get a cake either. Um, so if you have all the potential energy, you have all the ingredients, different people, and they come together to have their ideas do battle or to mix things up, um, but then no one's willing to change their mind or revise their viewpoint or respect the other viewpoints, then you're not going to get anything. You're just going to have a debate that goes nowhere. So that thing is called intellectual humility, sort of the philosophy term for it. Being sitting in between stubbornness and gullibility, being willing to revise your viewpoints, separate your ego from your need to be right, but knowing when you shouldn't revise your viewpoint. So not having a team that just sort of waffles all over the place, that's really hard, but that's the third ingredient. So you want the discomfort, you want the battle, but you want to have the ability to sort of change, and and you also there's things you, you need to sort of depressurize that tense uh, situation. Anyway, so that, that's kind of the, the equation: is cognitive diversity basically leads to cognitive friction, but you you have cognitive friction, then you add intellectual humility.
1: I, l- I love the cognitive friction term really. Um, Just yeah. 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 Uh, how do you know the limits to push? Back?
2: That's, yeah, I mean, it's hard to know, right? It's all custom. This is all, you know, any problem that you're solving is gonna be a different company, right? Um, so the, the thing I would say is the more trust you have in a group, specifically for people's intentions, uh, the more personal support you have um, or emotional support, the further you can push things. My favorite um, story um, or little anecdote that I put in the book about that is the Wright brothers. So they had this process where they'd be working on a really hard problem and they would deliberately get in a big fight about it. They'd raise their voice and they knew that they were, they grew up similarly, they're similar enough that they were, would tend to think within sort of certain boundaries. So they would deliberately take really hard sides on issues and, and raise their voice and actually fight about it and sort of force themselves to play these characters. And then uh, to the point that their lab assistants and their neighbors were worried that these fights were, you know, they're going to strangle each other. Um, And then at lunchtime they'd stop and they'd eat their sandwiches. And then Orville would now have to uh, argue Wilbur's side and Wilbur would have to argue Orville's side. So they did this process of sort of debate and switch so that they deliberately had to sort of detach their need to be right from the, you know, it had to be about pushing the ideas forward. Um, or at the point when Orville like, I'm going to epic murder you. Then he's like, okay, time to switch. And that was uh, their process. But I think in part they could do that because they're brothers. They could push things really far because they knew at the end of the day they loved each other and it's going to be okay. That's not something that happens instantly necessarily, which is actually, this is an area where a lot of instincts when people are building companies, starting startups or even big corporations, your instincts for who you hire tend to often be people who are demographically similar than you because there's a little more of that sort of built-in in-group trust. Mm-hmm. Someone looks like you, they talk like you, they tend to think like you, then in sort of tribal terms, you can turn your back on them and they won't stab you for your woolly man's sake, basically. And this leads to kind of subconsciously a lot of team-building decisions that in the long run don't service because we're not, we don't have a lot of cognitive diversity built in by the time we have really hard problems to solve. Right. I feel like that's why you see a lot of people hire from their fraternity or from their military yes. or. Cause you have this trust and you know, okay, we can have the, Happened with my co-founders and me eight years ago, when we started Contently, um, we do have different expertise, but Joe and I grew up together. We, you know, we've been watching WWF since we were in eighth grade together. Right. You know, we trust each other a lot. Dave and I have been working for years together. And so the three of us, we, we could have a lot of healthy debates and it was safe, but after a while, Three white dudes who all went to Ivy League schools who are super nerds and love WWF still is not who you want to solve the next set of problems, right? You know, the assumptions in the beginning were, were very different than the assumptions we have to knock down or the problems we have to solve when we're a bigger team. So, yeah, that's um, that trust thing. Uh, and in the book, I talk a lot about depressurizing the tension and what do you do when you have, say, a merger, you acquire a whole company, you have a whole bunch of different people that now have to work together. Or you a know, big company does kick off uh, you know, a diversity hiring program, usually for PR reasons. But um, you, know, you do say, you do decide, hey, we do want to hire a bunch of people who are not just like us. And then what happens is you get kind of fear and, and people holding back. And um, so how do you pop that pressure balloon and make it safe for people to actually address things that are difficult, make it safe for people to ask questions that might be uncomfortable, that might actually offend someone um, that you wouldn't bring out. How do you do that as a leader? The, the most interesting answer to that that I found in research, there's two of them that are, that are kind of big, but actually humor and play is one of the biggest things psychology-wise that helps people who are not in the same in-group feel safe around each other. Uh, so I have a story of this, uh, this woman who acquired a company in a different country and all of her engineers were freaked out and uh, the new company was like oh great we're getting take o- taken over and um and there's a lot of sort of this pressure boiling and people are getting ready to leave and stuff and she basically uh made this environment where everyone uh, basically she made jokes and she dressed up as cruella the bill and she visited you know during the conference she's like I'm here to destroy the company and everyone laughs and they're like, this is the thing we're worried about and she started this whole program of getting people to play together, like play hockey games together and um, do competitions and and costume days and this stuff that seems really silly and frivolous but it kept the company together and actually helped them to address sort of the elephants in the room. There's things like that. I have this whole story I didn't write about where I was, uh, I got really drunk in Philadelphia and uh, woke up on some strange couch. I didn't know whose it was and i ended up at this starbucks to like clear my head and there's this really scary homeless guy there that was like one of those like pile of homeless people and um and he had this chess set and uh and he's looking at me from across and i'm hung over and and he's like looking at this chess set and me and for whatever reason i played this game of chess with him because that was crazy or i don't know i was like this would be a good story and by the end of the chess game this guy who i would have been very like he was a big dude with like curly fingernails and like Scary. I would never say hi to this guy on the street. I would never, like, I, I was afraid of him. By the end of this chess game, so before I even learned about this psychology of play, I was like, I love this guy. Um, he was great. And he would, like, he, instead of talking, he'd, like, make check marks with his gross, curly fingernail. and uh, And he was really good at chess, and he kicked my ass, and, like, by the end, I, you know, I shook his hand, and I was like... I got to know your name and he's like call me grandmaster like this guy was amazing uh, but did you find bobby fisher yeah. <laughs> i don't think it was bobby fisher um but but that's real and and so there's stuff like that that's sort of basically where we have to fight primitive psychology with more advanced psychology with a lot of these things but really it's about depressurizing and getting people to trust each other getting people to actually lean into the, I think part of the leader's job actually is to push people into that zone of cognitive friction. Uh, When too many people are getting along too well, um, you know, personally you should be getting along well, but when, you know, everyone's too excited about like, yes, we're doing this and now we're all on board. That's when the leader needs to identify. We need to bring in some other people or I need to assign some people to take the other side. We need to take a harder look. We need to provoke something here because we're we're going to end up on a suboptimal mountain peak, basically, or cut people, or yeah, you know, or exactly add some constraints that force people to uh, to think a little differently. Just,
1: just to follow on that, um, in a small business, quite often it starts like a family, and you know you hear a lot of talk about you know you want to make sure your company's more like a team rather than a family. And you're know, hearing the story with the the brothers, obviously having been able to hold each other and push each other to the brink. How do you reconcile that You see that that's really critical to be more family in the beginning but then it's going to move to team and you've got to educate people because I worked for a company called Volcom when it first started closing clothing thing and it was very much built on a family and then as it grew and hard decisions had to be made a lot of people got really put out of shape because it was almost built on this culture of family but then it clearly became just a yeah. team.
2: Yeah it's, it's a really interesting question and that, and an analogy I really like actually um, I think that, well, so anytime a group of people come together and it's magical, we tend to use the term family, right? Um, and there's something cool about, in a functional family, um, and I think about this with my siblings, actually, not as really much my parents right now, but um, but my siblings, we're all very different, and we all kind of, my parents are mad at me for moving to New York and getting tattoos and quitting the Mormon church, and like, uh, yeah, uh, so they're mad about that, but my siblings, we're all cool and we are all really different and we have very different lives and we love each other no matter what and we can actually have really crazy debates about things um, in a way that's not personal because there's no stakes with us and we're we're like a really tight family I think that's actually a really cool model um, but I think the problem with, with what you're talking about with like the Volcom family or whatever is we do have this very fixed idea of like the team is going to be the team forever and then we we have this hesitancy to let people go or to realize that that you know if we realize the team needs to be Reconstituted then it's personal. I think you know with I think about my siblings So my brother is a an amazing writer way better writer than me. We're super different um, But we collaborate on a lot of things, but I'll go three weeks without talking to him But then when there's a writing project that you know, want one is I honor he wants my help with uh, We'll get back together and you know, we'll talk really intensely for like eight hours there or whatever Um, I think that that model is actually pretty cool. I I really like the analogy of um, movie director for sort of team, and this has to do with the growth of a startup too. The different challenges you face are going to change, so the team makeup should change too. If you're directing a movie, who you cast is really important. That's going to make or break the film. You're making your next film. You're trying to break new ground. You're not going to cast the same people as last time, or the exact same. You might keep some people. You're not going to cast the exact same cast, Unless you're making Zoolander 4, and that's not going to be a good movie, right? Um, So uh, why do we do that with teams? You know, we're moving on to new challenges. Companies change, we're growing, we're trying to scale now, or whatever it is, or new problem. Why do we say, oh, same group of 10 people that did the last thing, why are they assigned to this thing? And also, if you're directing a movie, this is my movie rant, um, would you hire the 10 actors with the best GPAs from Harvard? No, you're going to have a terrible movie. Like That is so risky that that's going to turn into anything good. So why do we do that when we pick our team members? I think this is something that's very much in line with with your philosophy. Uh, You're trying to identify the perfect person, perfect combination of actors that are going to stretch each other, that are going to push each other to make an amazing film. Then when it's over, everyone gets paid, and you're all friends, you're all family. You can go to the reunion, and then, hey, we're making another film, and you, and need you, and the rest come to the theater to support, right? Uh, I think that's the model that, uh, and with the gig economy and a lot of stuff that's sort of changing in the world now, I think that's actually more possible, but having that fixed idea of who the team is and, and that is personal, if you're no longer involved, that's going to get in the way, in the way of progress and innovation. I do think that at some level, this stuff applies very well to like communities and society and like nations. And, and there is this, we're all part of a human family that some things we, uh, we need to think of ourselves as on the same team in that way that you're never going to not be part of the family. But not everyone is going to be making all the decisions of what's going on because we can't, or it's not relevant. We need representatives. Who we pick as our representatives, that needs to be you know very thoughtful and deliberate, and not just because, oh, that representative is on this team or this side or whatever. So I mean, I think there's a lot there, and I can ramble forever on that. But um, I, I do think that's why it's important that we switch things up when it comes to, you know, representation in society and, you know, we ought to maybe think about that in our companies too, you know, rotating who's taking on the role of facilitating the team. Um, I think that the leader of tomorrow needs to be much less the sort of hero that goes out to battle first and takes all the bullets and the stoic and whatever, and more the person who is helping the team unlock something smarter and better and braver than the leader would. And yeah, we still, Tend to promote and vote for people who look like the leader, right? Like if you're taller, you're more likely to become a CEO at some point um, because that's what we think of as a leader. But, you know, the I'm really rambling now. But oh, um, in, in sports terms, so I'm not really into sports, but I, I dove deep into sports to, uh, when I was working on this book. This guy wrote, the, the sports editor of the Wall Street Journal, uh, wrote this book called The Captain Class, where he looked at the greatest sports teams across all sports in history. And he tried to find, you know, the 10 greatest teams and what do they all have in common? And interestingly, the sports dynasties that are like the greatest in the world, um, one of the things they have in common is the team captain is not the best, the guy with the best stats or the girl with the best stats. The team captain leads from the shadows. There's all these things like sort of plays at the margins of the rules or willing to sort of do that like hacker thing. But uh, my favorite my two favorite uh, team captain of the Cuban women's volleyball team that won for like 12 years in a row, were just unstoppable. Um, she was the one that couldn't jump. and uh, But she was the one that helped unlock sort of the potential in her other players. My other favorite is the guy who's the captain of the Soviet national hockey team um, before and after the miracle on ice. So the miracle on ice was the time when the US beat the Soviets in the Olympics. And it was a miracle because they never lost. Yeah. The guy who was the captain of that team he uh, was not the best skater. He like had hardly any points, um, but he was incredible. And whenever he played, they won. And he would sacrifice his body for the team. He showed from example that it was about getting the puck in the net, not sort of increasing your stats. I think in part because in both of those cases, they weren't making money based on how many points they scored. You know, both of these were communist countries, actually. Um, so uh, you know, it was all about the team winning. And you know, in Having nothing to do with economics, that model for teamwork, actually, that the team pushing forward is more important than you getting paid more because you got more rebounds or whatever. Yeah. Um, that and, and the team captains that could do that uh, were the ones that, whose teams were successful for years and years and years in the way that, you know, I actually watched the NBA Finals this time because I've been writing about this stuff. You know, LeBron James might be the best basketball player ever. He's certainly the best one out there right now. But that doesn't matter if you know the team, if it's all on him, right? And, you know, They got beat by a team of people that had overall, not better individual stats than him, but overall they could uh, pull it together and win. Anyway, that's the most I've ever talked about sports <laughs> in a row. Um,
1: you were gonna say about 20 minutes ago, the most surprising statistic of all for
2: you? Oh yes, uh, intellectual humility. So that last piece of the equation. So for decades, philosophers and psychologists have argued about open-mindedness. So we talk about open-mindedness. Most people talk about it as a like a great virtue. Um, some people don't, and usually they're talking about being so open-minded that you are you waffle with every sort of new bit of information. That's not open-mindedness. But they've argued about open-mindedness and closed-mindedness and how do you get more or less of it because we've had no way to measure it. Um, there's been no assessment for open-mindedness in psychology literature the closest thing we had was openness to experience as part of the big five personality t- personality test. So it's like, are you willing to try pickle flavored ice cream? Basically. Um, are you open to traveling to Egypt or whatever it is? And that doesn't mean you're open-minded cause you could try every pickle flavored, whatever, but never be willing to like it. And that then you're just not open-minded. Um, you can hear someone's argument, but if you're never gonna change your mind, you're not open-minded. So just last year in 2017, They uh, developed the psychology community, developed an assessment for intellectual humility, which is basically the other four-fifths of open-mindedness that basically made it through the academic circuit and and they published it now. And you can actually take this test and it measures four things. Respect for other viewpoints, uh, not being intellectually overconfident, separating your ego from your intellect, and ability to revise your viewpoint when it's hard. So if you add those to being being willing to try pickle-flavored ice cream, it's a pretty good picture of open-mindedness. So what I did is I took those two assessments and put them together um, with the permission, basically, of these professors that developed it and then this huge national study of basically take that assessment, how open-minded are you or how intellectually humble are you, and then tell me all of these other things about your life, where you've lived, what you do, your opinions on things, your habits, all that. And out of that came some really interesting... So it was the first basic big study on correlations with open-mindedness. There's a lot more work to be done. There's a lot of work that I'm actually doing right now on it. Um, My most surprising thing is that despite being this person who who identifies as very curious and willing to try things, I scored very low on two of the dimensions of intellectual humility, separating my ego from my intellect. So if you convince me I'm wrong about something, I might change my mind about it, but I'm going to go home and feel shitty about myself. (laughs) And that might actually get in the way of us having a productive discussion because my ego is going to be attached and also intellectual overconfidence think i'm pretty fucking smart and you know and i am but i tend to be overconfident about that um so uh so just recognizing that just taking that test is eye-opening because then it helps you understand your limits and that you need other people and all that um but some of the correlations that came out of this study were really um fascinating as a as a journalist i so i asked a bunch of questions about your news reading habits and your general reading and viewing habits turns out that Watching more news, reading more news does not make you more open-minded. I was pretty bummed about that. That was my hypothesis. And it, was oh, it's opposite. it you tend to get entrenched in your viewpoints. Mm-hmm. Um, but reading a lot of fiction actually is very correlated with more intellectual humility. And and I don't know yet how much of it's causation versus correlation, but when you look at the neuroscience of storytelling, basically what happens when you hear a story or you learn a story or, or someone tells you a story that's a very human story that's an emotional story your brain generates oxytocin which is like the empathy chemical which you get enough of that and your brain starts wiring itself to care about someone who's not like you so what is fiction what is netflix but taking in stories about people who aren't like you so there's a threshold that uh, i forget exactly what it is it's like two books a month or six hours of fictional television a week gives you a significant jump in respect for other viewpoints. And uh, yeah. Six hours of TV a week. So let your kids watch on TV, yeah.
1: I mean, all sorts that.
2: But that was super surprising to me. And so now I'm like, hey, as a nonfiction writer, uh, maybe I need to go read more fiction. Um, and there's a whole bunch of other things that are correlated with that. Travel is sort of the intuitive one. But actually living in another country has a much, more, much higher correlation than just visiting other countries so i use that as an excuse to go to mexico city for three months i'm wearing my h mexico hat um this year to live in mexico city and to experience another way of living and um and you know the theory is that whether it's causation or correlation i think it's probably causation that you your brain figures out at a subconscious level that there's more than one right way to live that that transfer transfers to you know we have a discussion about something there's some cognitive friction going on between our different viewpoints I'm a little more open to maybe your viewpoint is valid too. So uh, that was the most surprising thing. And I think there's a lot of work to be done now that we can measure that stuff. Um, But I think if everyone in the world took that test and then worked on, so I'm working on my ego, right? So the question are what are the things that can help you with that? If everyone in the world worked on that, you imagine like if everyone in Congress like had that as a priority, like how amazing could we make and how much more could we invent? And anyway, that to me is really important. That's great. Um,
0: I have a question, about, I'm from Mexico and just a quick comment uh, two years ago I passed a law where whoever is running for office if it's a man the, the position below the him has okay. to be a woman so um, I always thought it was sexy that it was trying to empower the woman but now maybe it's a lot of studies behind it <laughs> about um, the harmony of the team It's right? so interesting, that's interesting. Um, you were mentioning about your book you know um every time i work or a volunteer working with women it's always like drama you know about something and um you were saying giving uh different examples how the leader actually takes pressure out of that drama right mm-hmm. do you actually um have a guideline in your book like uh people human resources there are no different companies can different teams can actually read and what to do about it because I can see your male perspective mm-hmm. of it, but uh, women were totally different how they function. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. So what I'm saying now, do you, do you have some, I haven't read your books so
2: I... Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of things in there. I, um, I'm i also cognizant that gender is also an identity thing and it's not a binary thing and, and not every generalization is true, but there are a lot of generalizations that you know will tend to trend. You, know, you can predict that a group of women will tend to behave more likely a certain way than a group of men will, right? So that's sort of the caveat, that it's not all absolute. Um, but there's what I try to do is break down the underlying principles, that whatever dimension of difference we're talking about, um, what are you trying to get and, and how are you trying to manage that? And I think that, yeah, what you don't want is a group of people who are all so similar in the way that they approach things and where the drama is not about ideas where the drama gets personal. And I think this is, you know, men or women. Like it, you know, maybe it tends to be reflected in different ways. But uh, you know, the jockeying for position or you know, the perception of who's right. And I think a lot of this with leadership has to do with who are we putting in position, who are we promoting? Are we promoting the person that is visibly winning the arguments or you know talking the most or whatever, or are we putting the person, promoting the person who's actually helping other people succeed, right? Um, But in any case, the thing with drama is, often drama is personal. And when, you know, at the point when it gets personal and it's no longer about ideas, that's when you start having fallacies. That's when, you know, it's no longer moving the party forward, right? So my my favorite analogy for that one, besides The Wright Brothers, and then I read about this in the second chapter of the book, is the history of hip hop. How uh, that musical genre and everything that came from it was actually developed through this battle aesthetic right it was the party where you had dj on this side and dj on this side everyone came and and the djs were trying to get you the crowd to dance on one side or the other that eventually turned into this battle of lyrics and battle of wits and battle of dance and everyone was in on it that the more fun this party was and you come back with the same material every week you were always sort of pushing yourself they're pushing each other but they're all in on it that more people would show up and pay more money And have more fun. And then eventually people started recording it and we got hip hop out of it. But DJs would hack their equipment to get an edge. We pushed the computing industry forward because of this. But at a certain point it did start to get personal and the whole East coast, West coast beef thing and Tupac and Biggie get murdered. And it's suddenly not about music. It's not about pushing the party forward anymore. Right. And I think a lot of times drama is getting caught up in things that are not about pushing the group forward. Um, And Some of that is a failure of leadership. I I actually wouldn't chalk that up to, you know, gender dynamics necessarily, um, unless it's, you know, around the way that we've been kind of brought up, you know, to interact with each other. But it's, I think a lot of times that's a failure of leadership in recognizing that this is not productive conflict, that we can channel those differences into the, uh, you know, the group aim rather than having it be about, this person did that, or this person did that, or I'm not going to say this. I'm going to hold back what I have so they can fail or fall on their face or whatever. Like that's what drama is and, and gossip is, and that's that's the opposite of innovation. So anyway, I, I, I tend to ramble, and I'm on a lot of caffeine it's right it's now, great. So, yeah, it's great. Great. Okay. so I.
0: So I push on that. List. So do you think to avoid that, and then a lot of this, I like, think there has to be a practical middle ground. Like for instance, so you know, I need to, I need a team that has Diverse opinions, but there are certain values that I have to be able to count on every member of my team to hold in order for me to trust them. Mm-hmm. I'm going to know that at a fundamental level, we value the same things. You know, it's important mm-hmm. for a project to have different people and different viewpoints, but if I don't, if I can't trust that there's a loyalty from my employer, that I'm not going to take as so much ownership over a project if I think that, oh, for the sake of diversity, I'm out next week. Yeah, um, so there's how does it walk that?
2: Yeah, there's something really interesting to that. I have uh, this whole chapter about the problem with core values, because with cognitive diversity and with different backgrounds come different personal values. And we've conflated for many years um, in business the idea of sort of cult-like cultures and the whole thing from good to great, built to last, and research in the 70s that said that we're happiest at work when we work with people with our same values. And same personalities that's not correlated with good problem solving um the trust thing is the thing that the positive thing you get from shared values but what you also get from shared values is a tendency to have shared points of view and so there's this paradox that's really tricky and the answer is uh i think not all values are created equal and a lot of times what we say are our values are actually wish list behaviors here's how you should approach this type of problem I think if we don't allow for flexibility on that, then we're setting ourselves up to be in a happy relationship that then can be disrupted by someone else. So what you don't want is the person who sees the waterfall that you're about to go over to not be able to say something. Um, I have this story in the book about this, uh, at the War of 1812, basically this misfit army that beat the bad guys. Um, But there's this group of Scottish soldiers that they were really big on these shared values of obedience, no matter what, and loyalty to the crown, and don't do anything. Basically, it was like obedience was the overriding one. At this point in the battle, their uh, captain yelled, halt, and then got shot. And then they stayed put, and this is stupidity, but it's also, it was in great. everyone was too scared to do anything but halt until another captain from another battalion finally made it over and said, okay, retreat. And it's, it's really sad I and mean, like 800 of them died and it's a really sad uh, sort of extreme example of what the danger is in having too much in common even something that is actually good I think making room for different values is very important the the thing you have to have is a shared purpose you have to have a sort of that superordinate goal of we all want this thing we all are what do you say loyal to the company that's you know, you can couch that as a value, but you could also couch that as this is our shared purpose, this is our mission. Right. Whereas it's OK if, if I value kindness over justice and you value justice over kindness, and this is a situation where we have to choose, then maybe we can actually, if we're allowed to have those different values and debate, maybe we come up with a third option. Or maybe we say, we decide, OK, in this case, we're going to go with justice. But at least we could talk it through so that we know we're not going over the waterfall um, that we could have avoided. So I think that's, it, it gets very nuanced. But there, and there's a lot of research actually into, so Charlene Namath is a famous Berkeley professor who, she did a bunch of research on this very thing about how too much emphasis on core values and really the misnomer values of wishless behaviors. The customer's always right at all costs. Too much emphasis on that is actually the death of creativity and the death of innovation. So I think even if you have, like these are our core things that we believe in, but one of the things is we believe that anyone can deviate from this and that's okay, if you can actually have that work, then that's really effective. I think in in Judaism, um, you can, you're can you allowed to break any rule, if it's to save a life. I don't know if that's true, I don't know if anyone's Jewish here. Uh, I am, but here. I wouldn't know the answer to that. Okay, I think I think that, uh, that that's Judaism, you're allowed to break any rule if it's to save a life. I think having that allowance and actually having people believe that and not be afraid to do that is really important. Because um, yeah, because there's the question of, if you have this gang of misfits, great, you have the potential, but what unifies you, right? right, right. Um, I think Google's a really good example, actually. They got really big without a, a list of core values. Their only thing was don't be evil, which is sort of the reminder that the values that really matter, the ones that, you know, all values aren't created equal, the ones that always are important are like integrity, right? And not murdering each other and, you um, and, And then they said, our mission is to organize the world's information. And that was a purpose that people could say, okay, well, if I have the flexibility to get there, you know, any path possible, then that opens up a lot of possibilities. So I think that's, there's something there. And I know that a lot of organizations hear this and they're like, oh, great. We have this list of values that we love and it unifies us. And I would say, think about which ones of those are sort of universal human values that, you know, if anyone didn't do that, in the world, in real life, that would be a problem, and think about which ones of these are things that we actually could be flexible on, and can we find other ways to unify the group through, say, rituals. So another thing with families, right? Um, family can be as different you know, as, as they want. I have six siblings, and we're all very different, and yet we all go home for Christmas, and we sing songs around the Christmas tree, and we have these family traditions. We have this dumb tradition in the holidays where we Uh, everyone gets a, like a, what do you call it? Uh, shower cap. We put whipped cream on the shower caps and everyone gets a bottle of cheese puffs and we run around the yard throwing cheese puffs and you have to get them stuck in each other's sky. This is the most ridiculous thing I've ever described in public, but every year we do this with all the nieces and nephews and, uh, we've been doing this for years and this is like our family ritual and we do this and, and it bonds us. So you can actually have this things that unify a group that are your own, that make you feel like part of something still allow you to be who you are and um, so i think that's kind of the the answer the purpose and the rituals that are all of your own that don't step on someone's ability to think hey there might be another way of approaching this problem
0: what do you say bond bonds beats body bonds be- bonding bond. yeah
2: yeah i think building that personal trust or that feeling that we're in it together that we'll do anything for each other and the team that that trumps the you know the values question uh, and like i said like if the value is like don't murder right that's never gonna be a problem um, but if the value is actually you know we a lot of them you, you look up um you know corporate values and any examples you find half of them will be stuff like the customer's always right or you know always help someone out before you do your own work. Sometimes like if the airplane is crashing and you help someone out before you put your mask on, you might die, right? Like sometimes those things are actually, those are the ones that are, that are the, the dangerous ones. And really it's dangerous when, uh, people are afraid to do anything else because they think they'll get kicked out of the family if they don't do it. Uh, anyway,
1: right, we got time for one more question. Anyway,
2: Joe. Yeah.
1: What's the difference between like uh, culture and core values?
2: Culture, I have this diagram, see if I remember it right. There's a difference between cult and culture. Um, Culture is a combination of people unified around one thing, either a person, personality, or purpose. Um, And the difference between cult and a culture is a cult has that and they require strict adherence to certain behaviors. Whereas a culture, if it's not a cult, uh, allows room to be unique. So there's this concept of optimal distinction. You're distinct within this group that's all unified. So that's what a culture is. So a cult is basically like, if you deviate from these things, then you're kicked out of the group. So a lot of times the core values thing leans more on the cult side, where it's like, if you don't believe this or if you don't operate this way, then you don't belong here. Um, it doesn't allow people to be unique. And so that that's the difference. And, and like I said, it, it's sort of tricky because there's the universally human ones that Are generally going to be fine when we're talking about problem solving. um, You know, I I found this little things in in my company when we would have these, uh, everyone participates in the happy hour until Judy, who has three kids and wants to meet her kids after the bus, actually would like nothing less than to go to happy hour at five o'clock and realizing that this actually creates an environment where Judy doesn't feel like she can be herself or she has some. Uh, less loyalty to the team because we're not allowing her to be herself. That, that sort of thing uh, you can see the nuances where it's not necessarily values but we're saying like everyone has to do this and that can lead to you know Judy is an invaluable part of our problem solving process and we want her to be on board with the purpose and the happy hour doesn't matter as much as that. So I don't know if that answers the you know. So my last question, um, you've answered it before because you've been on
1: the podcast, but what are your top three pieces of advice for people to be more effective?
2: More effective? i trying to remember what I said. Don't. On the <laughs> um,
0: Fast, drink a lot of booze, do weird shit.
2: Yeah, yeah. I didn't be curious. Yeah, I, I, oh, sorry, I may have said this. Spend the percentage of your time exploring things that are not core to your work. Um, so with me, it's writing right about things like weird shit, um, or doing weird experiments, the, uh, if well, I, you know this whole theory of teamwork and innovation that I've been putting forth, if that's the case, and it can also happen in our own heads, right? That the more perspectives you gain, the more different ways of seeing the world, um, the more likely you are to be able to make connections and, and be innovative yourself in your own head. It's like the, those Soviet hockey players that had the amazing team captain, They, their coach was a key part of what made them so great because he made them train in ballet and do like ninja moves and like karate and jump off of trees and taught them to see analogies in the whole, anything you can see in the world, see if you can apply it to hockey. And that made them really clever hockey players. So, um, I think, yeah, one of the things would be give yourself an excuse to have your own 20% time to explore things and then try to draw analogies from that into your own work. I really believe in that. Um, another would be, I think, work on identifying your, uh, open-mindedness, uh, blind spots or deficiencies. You can (coughs) go to my website and actually take the test. Um, It's in the back of the book for everybody. Yeah. Um, that would be one. And then I think being more effective is what you're saying. Mm -hmm. So I alluded to this. I might, might have told this on, on the podcast too, um, but, uh, but start to think of your intellectual opponents as part of your team. I think we need to start thinking of anyone in the same way that anything can be an analogy for hockey. Um, anything, anyone out there could be the teammate that you need, whether they're deliberately trying to help you or not. Uh, we can learn from people. And, and actually inviting, the, inviting your opponents to critique you, um, inviting your competitors to uh, tell you what they don't like about you, inviting people who you know, are from a different political viewpoint than, than you to weigh in on things. Uh, I think the more we start to do that, one, we start to build bridges, but also I've been doing my best writing ever, ever since I've been reaching out to people who write bad reviews of my stuff and, ask the, and I ask them to pre-review stuff that I'm about to publish. And I've done this many times now. And, and it hurts less when someone tells you what you don't want to hear when you've invited it. Um, but now, so there's this guy at MIT who just was brutal to me in this Atlantic piece. He wrote about a blog post of mine one time. And ever since he and I started corresponding and now we ask each other to review each other's work before we publish stuff. And this guy is like, we're very opposite in the way that we see a lot of things, but, um, but I find his advice very useful. And so I kind of consider him part of my writing team in many ways. If I'm writing something controversial, I'll reach out to him. I think we need to do a lot more of that, um, and, uh, and that can make you a lot more effective rather than when you need help making something better, reaching out to people who think like you, who, you. you've been, yeah, who've been your on your side forever. So I have uh, one, one of my writing partners I've been writing with for a long time. He is no longer as useful because we've known each other for 10 years now and been writing together because I, I kind of know what I can rely on him for, but he's not going to push me as much because we've been on a parallel path now for some time. And I, I think that that's... What sucks is we get along so well, and we have a ton of fun when we ride together. But um that's not as helpful as this Ethan guy who hates my guts. Oh. It's
1: very impressive from an ego standpoint. So, um, all right. Well, so everyone, you, you have the book in your bags, and um, I encourage you to read it. And Shane, that was great. Thank, Thank you. you.
2: Thank
1: you. Thanks for listening to the Less Doing podcast. At Less Doing, we help entrepreneurs who have opportunity in excess of what their infrastructure can support to set up systems and processes that empower a team to ultimately make themselves more replaceable. That way, they can optimize, automate, and outsource everything in their businesses in order to be more effective. If you want to find out more about Less Doing, the podcast, the blog, the books, and all of the wonderful programs we offer to help you get from where you are to where you know you want to be. Go to lessdoing.com slash podcast and check out our OAO blueprint so you can get started today.